according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll try not to move around too much. The wire in my microphone has a short in it. Thank you, man. All right, Beverly gets extra credit this morning. The rest of you are already 20 points behind. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I anticipate this being our final class in this episode. I didn't really anticipate when we first began episode 20 here, Jesus encourages John the Baptist that it would take the uh, time that it has taken, but I'm glad that we've taken the time with it to uh, deal with material here. We've covered the material that's common to both Matthew and Luke, contained in Matthew 11 and Luke 7. Last week we we, uh, studied the material that is unique to Matthew speaking of how the kingdom of heaven can suffer violence and how violent men uh, abuse it, take it by force. This morning we will examine the material that's common to Luke, or that is exclusive to Luke, which is Luke 7, verses 29 and 30. Uh, Those two verses are not contained in the uh, material that Matthew records. And then we will wrap it up with uh, with the brats, with the disobedient children, the little punks in the street that... uh, we, if you think they're common to uh, to the 21st century American landscape, uh, no, there have always been punks. There have always been the gangbangers and the hoodlums and the thugs and the uh, the disobedient brats, the never satisfied brats. No matter what they're given, they always are dissatisfied, and it's really a remarkable set of circumstances. We will examine them this morning as well, and then uh, be prepared to move on to episode number 21 for next week, the uh, the woes upon the privileged that are then outlined in Matthew chapter 11. Before we begin this morning, let's take time for silent prayer to assure that each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and to receive instruction. We ask for your hand of blessing upon our studies, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 7. To this point, we, um, as we look at verses 18 through 35, we've dealt with the disciples of John that came with a question, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And uh, we look at the, uh, the answer that he's given. And those men then returned. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. And now he's got questions for them. What did you go out to see? What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Uh, But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. There's the second question. And then uh, all of these, uh, both of these are answered no. And the second one is really rather ridiculous. You shouldn't have to answer it no. Um, and then verse 26, what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. So you can answer that yes, but if you just leave it at that, then you've really um, cut John short as far as the praise that he's entitled to, the respect that he's entitled to, and actually the urgency of listening to what it is he has to say. Because every prophet that came prior to John had the message that the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming, the Christ is coming. John the Baptist, his message was the Christ is here, there he is, listen to him. And so the urgency of John's ministry is uh, is vital, and that's what we'll be looking at here today. Now, I'm going to jump on ahead. 
the Lord's uh, examination of the crowd concerning John. And we pointed out the fact that there were three questions that were raised there and how they parallel the three questions that John himself was asked when the Pharisees first started to check him out. And also related these questions to the question that the Lord will ask his disciples, who do the people think I am? And then he follows that up with, who do you think I am? And those questions then become vital in our understanding of, of salvation to begin with. You and I today perhaps are not as, uh, it's not as incumbent upon us to answer the question, uh, what think you of John the Baptist? We can pretty much go straight to what think you of Christ uh, by virtue of, of using the person and work of Jesus Christ as the focal point of our evangelism. Don't get me wrong, we should start with Christ as the focal point of our evangelism. But for the believers of this day, at this time, in this chapter, they heard the message of John and they came away with one of two impressions. Either he was worth listening to and, and it was necessary to humble yourself and get baptized or he was a fruitcake dressed in some kind of a wild outfit living in the in the wilderness and and he was not worth listening to and people had one of those two reactions the pharisees had the second of those two reactions they viewed him as being some weirdo some crazy person and and they had no business uh, or they had no interest in whatever his business was because of that they were very negative to jesus in the very next um ministry to come along you see how this is working the positive volition towards john the baptist led to a positive volition to jesus christ a negative volition of john the baptist led to an even greater negative volition towards jesus christ and i'm getting ahead of myself so we'll uh, we'll outline this for you here point by point at a point seven we dealt with matthew's recorded detail and that's what we covered last week from matthew 11 12 through 15 i'm just going to pass by all of these sub points we gave them to you last week. We did leave off, though, with, I thought these were interesting, and as we ran out of time on my uh, drive home last week, I really started to wonder if maybe um, I had gone through it too quickly. So let's get over to Matthew 11 and, and make sure we're solid on this. Because this is phrased as a conditional statement, an if-then statement. We are used to conditional statements. We use them all the time. We use them every day. Every language has syntax as a feature of that language that's able to express a conditional statement, an if-then phrase. It doesn't matter if you're speaking English or Spanish or French or whatever you're speaking, Greek, Hebrew, it doesn't matter. Every language has a means by which to communicate a conditional uh, expression, an if and a, and a then. And they all work the same way. If... A condition is met, then the results follow. If a condition is not met, then the results don't follow or different results follow, depending on how the uh, if-then statement is constructed, similar to the conditional covenant of the Mosaic Law. If they obeyed the law, then they were um, objects of the Lord's blessings. If they disobeyed the law, then Israel was the object of the Lord's cursings. And both of those blessing or cursing were elements of God's faithfulness. God was faithful to apply the consequences to the conditions of the Mosaic Law Conditional Covenant. If they obeyed, they were blessed. If they disobeyed, they were cursed. If they disobeyed long enough, they were swept away into captivity. And that's exactly what they did and why we're studying that in the book of Daniel. So we have an if-then statement here in Matthew chapter 11. If you are willing to accept it, then John himself is the coming Elijah. 
if you are willing to accept it, then John is the coming Elijah. Now, um, 14, thank you. Yeah, Matthew 11 and verse 14. It comes as the capstone of his testimony. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, among those born among women, is that just a stupid expression or what? You know, show me somebody who wasn't born from a woman. <laughs> you know, show me someone who didn't have a mom. You've got to go all the way back to Adam and Eve to find a human being that didn't have a human mom. All right? But it's not a stupid phrase. It's not a dumb expression. There's a purpose for that expression. It's to demonstrate from Adam and Eve to this present time. Now, we know dispensationally that includes Gentiles and Jews. It includes the dispensation of, of uh, the Gentiles, the dispensation of Israel. And within the dispensation of Israel, it includes the age of promise, the age of law. And now, presently, from this st uh, standpoint, the age of the incarnation, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. From the days, uh, and, and that's what verse 12 gets into. But verse 11, going back to the beginning of human history, looking at all dispensations, Gentile and Jewish, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So we have a statement here, and it relates directly to the kingdom of heaven, and it's looking forward to this, this age that is about to dawn. Remember that it is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Forget for the moment where you sit now in 2006 A.D. and the knowledge you have now because you have a New Testament. Forget all that. Pretend that you don't know that there's a second advent coming after the first advent and there's a church age in between and that all everything that you know, you have to forget that for the time being. You have to suspend that. It's not fair to judge this text by later information. And so, consistent with John the Baptist's message, consistent with Jesus Christ's message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? And, uh, and this, the uh, nature of that kingdom is one that even the least, the smallest, the worst, the most insignificant, the biggest loser in the history of the kingdom of heaven, somebody who's saved and then who never bears any fruit whatsoever, positionally, has great standing by virtue of what the kingdom of heaven even is. Now, that's verse 11, giving us a concept, helping us to think big picture from Adam to the present time. In verse 12, it gets much more localized from the days of John the Baptist until now. So, in verse 11, we were looking at everything from of all human history and anticipating the coming kingdom in verse 12, though, we zoom in specifically to the current age, that is, the dispensation of Israel, the age of the Incarnation. And it's defined with those terms. From the days of John the Baptist until now, even until now, up to and including the present time. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. That's what we taught last week. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until... Up to and including John, the final prophet, the final anticipator of the coming Christ. Talked about that. Well, I really thought we, so did, are we clear on the fact that John is the last? 
that you had Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and, and Nathan and all of the prophets from Isaiah to Jeremiah and name those books of the Bible. You get all the way through Malachi and then you have all these silent years with no risen prophets. And then all of a sudden we're starting to see prophets again. We have Simeon and Anna in the temple. We have John the Baptist. All right. We start to have prophets again in this generation. And uh, the very final one is the herald who baptizes Jesus Christ in the River Jordan and proclaims the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know how momentous an event that really was. We looked at it from the standpoint of Christ receiving his anointing and beginning his public ministry. We should have looked at it also. We didn't, but we could have also looked at that event as the final work assignment of the Old Testament prophets. Because every single one of them had messages and prophecies looking ahead to the coming Christ. And John got to lay hands on him and dunk him under the water and bring him up and testify, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a finality attached to John. And if you are willing to accept, if you are willing to accept, now it isn't is as in italics that's an english word supplied to try to bring out a meaning of the greek but if you are willing to accept willing speaks of volition willing speaks of the human desire either you are willing or you are not willing say but if you are willing if you are willing that is if you express the positive volition the decision to accept to accept what all the prophets up to and including the message of John the Baptist. All the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept all the prophets in the law, testifying even unto and including John, then John himself is Elijah who was to come. John himself is Elijah who was to come. A conditional statement. Now, uh, we did not go back to the Old Testament. Let's get that this morning. We're going to go to two places. We're going to go to Isaiah 40. We're also going to go to Malachi. Let's start with Isaiah 40. And I know I've mentioned this before, and maybe it's not sunk in, or maybe other pastors have mentioned it and it did sink in. How many chapters are there in, in Isaiah? 66 chapters in Isaiah. How many books in our Bible? 66 books in our Bible. There is such a parallel between the book of Isaiah with its 66 chapters and the canon of Scripture with its 66 books, right? Recognizing, of course, the real Bible, not these Da Vinci Code, Apocrypha Bible books and things like that. All right. Sixty six chapters in Isaiah, sixty six books in the Bible. Now, how many are in the Old Testament? No, thirty nine. Thirty nine. And then twenty seven in the New Testament. It's remarkable that in the book of Isaiah, the first thirty nine chapters are filled with wrath and judgment and condemnation and and corrective messages and so forth. But starting with chapter forty. What you might expect to coincide with the Gospel of Matthew and a book by book, you know, here we're transitioning into the New Testament. It begins with comfort. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. And we have the final 27 chapters of Isaiah, chapter 40 through 66, uh, with 
a tone of encouragement and comfort and hope, a tone of grace, a tone that is very well consistent with the message of the New Testament. So comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, verse 3, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I'll stop there for the moment. Is this first advent or is this second advent? (laughs) It's both. It's both in a lot of ways. We can answer that now because we're after the first advent, but we haven't seen the second advent. As far as valleys lifted up and mountains brought low, the great geographical changes that take place, those are still waiting second advent. As far as a voice calling in the wilderness, clear way for the Lord, John the Baptist did that first advent. We're even told in the Gospels, he cites that. The Pharisees ask him, are you the prophet? No. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Then who are you? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 3. So John is that. But not all of this comes through in first advent. Why? Some of this is now waiting second advent. Some of this is waiting second advent. Now, um... Let's go to, from here, let's go to Malachi. Let's go to Malachi. Chapter 3 and then chapter 4. Arnold Fruchtenbaum calls this Malachi. He says this is the great Italian prophet Malachi. All right. Commonly referred to as Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send Malachi. The name Malachi means my messenger. So in chapter 3, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Or he says, Behold, I'm going to send Malachi. Remarkable that a prophet by the name of Malachi... Are you still looking for Malachi? It's the last book of the Old Testament. All right. I'm sorry. I thought you would have been there right now. All right. Behold, I'm going to send Malachi, chapter 3. I'm going to send my messenger. He picks a prophet, he picks a Jewish kid named Malachi. And he says, you're going to be the prophet who's going to write a book called Malachi. It's going to be called My Messenger. And it's going to be about my messenger. It's going to be about a forerunner, a herald, someone who's going to come as the greatest of those born among women. And it's in total agreement with what Isaiah had said some 700 years prior, all right, or 300 years prior to Malachi. We have Isaiah in 700 B.C. and Malachi in 400 B.C. Behold, I'm going to send Malachi, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Same language, clear the way. Same language as Isaiah 40 in verse 3. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. All right, so we've got a messenger, we've got the Lord, and then restated the messenger. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Now, uh, is this first advent or second advent? I'm giving you all these trick questions this morning. Both. That's right, both. Because remember, just like in Isaiah, just like in Malachi, they don't know about two advents. They don't know what person or time. They don't know that Christ is going to come once and suffer and die and then go, go away to heaven and then 2,000 more years are going to pass as a church, as a bride is prepared and all that. They don't know about any of that. They just are looking forward to a coming one, a coming Christ. And they've got certain scriptures that talk about his suffering. They've got other certain scriptures that talk about his reign. But they're only looking at his coming as a single event. They don't know about the two events. And so when we read into a passage here that deals with covenant or when deals with his coming and we try to ask, was this first advent or second advent? It's really a trick question if you're coming at it from the standpoint of, of where they are in the Old Testament. We can answer it better from our perspective. Now, he will come into his, he will suddenly come into his temple. Well, he did that first advent a couple of times, didn't like what he saw there, did he? Cleansed the temple, threw tables over, you know, got pretty, uh, got pretty, uh, charismatic there a little bit you know got all riled up in the spirit and drove him out and did all that stuff all right he's going to do so again second advent he's going to come into his temple the very temple that antichrist defiles and if you thought he went berserk in the first advent it's be kind of interesting to see how that antichrist defiled temple gets cleansed i think it gets smashed i think the whole temple comes down and he he rebuilds it anew he builds ezekiel's temple from ezekiel 40 through 48 All right. Now, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. So this is all second advent, this description right here. He didn't do any of this in first advent. He didn't come with great wrath. He didn't come as a conqueror. He didn't come to judge. He said, do not think I came to judge the world. He came to save the world. First advent. This passage deals more with second advent. So there's a there's a messenger coming. There's a messenger coming. Now John the Baptist was a messenger. But he could have been the messenger. The only messenger. Of course we know now that there are two messengers. John the Baptist of the first advent and Elijah of the second advent. When we get to the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Remember, this is the end of the Bible. So far as the disciples are concerned, because the canon of Scripture is closed, Malachi is the last writing prophet, and we enter into the silent period of 400 years between the Testaments. There is no more Bible getting written. The Bible that Jesus walked around with was Genesis to Malachi. All right? Metaphorically speaking, that was the Bible of his day. And the very last word of the Bible was, behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Is that first heaven or second heaven? Yeah, great and terrible day of the Lord. That's, that's bad news. That's the tribulation of Israel. That's the time of judgment. That's the time of enforced discipline and humility that humbles the rebellious nation of Israel and brings them to repentance to accept their Christ. 
And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how the Bible ends. That's how. So when when the Baptist arises and when then when Christ arises, you understand why 400 years from now there's all this anticipation and the Pharisees send messengers. Are you are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? See, because that's how their Bible had ended some 400 years ago with the prophet Malachi. Now we get into the New Testament and Luke chapter 1, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of the Baptist here. And the message that comes... Luke chapter 1, Zacharias in the temple, verse 8. He was performing his priestly service before God. He's all alone here in the temple. And then all of a sudden an angel appears, verse 11, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Ooh, where'd you come from? Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. You will have uh, joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Why? Uh, verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. Notice what it says in verse 17. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Now, where'd that come from? That's from the Malachi. Yeah, Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, John the Baptist, before he's even born, the instructions given to Zacharias are that, that John is going to be a forerunner. He's going to be a herald. Is he Elijah? According to this text, no, he's going in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will accomplish the activity that Elijah is promised to accomplish, turning the hearts of the children back to the fathers and, and uh, the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Which now takes us to Matthew 11. We're in verse 14 or verse 13. It says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Every Old Testament prophet, as well as the law of Moses, basically the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, prophesied up to and including the messages of John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept, John himself is Elijah who was to come. I would put forth that in the plan of God that plan which cannot be thwarted, the plan which takes into consideration every single decision by every single human being in the history of the human race, that had Israel accepted their Christ, then, Eli then John the Baptist would have completely fulfilled everything Malachi 4 expected. And there would not have been a need for a second advent. There would not have been a need for Elijah to literally return. 
Because John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist came and fulfilled what Elijah was promised to come and fulfill. If you care to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Now, we, we, let's be honest, we struggle with this. Because our finite mind can't grasp the what-ifs. We can't grasp what if Israel had accepted their king. What if they had, re- they had humbled themselves? What if they had rejected the legalism of the Pharisees? What if they had embraced the Messiahship of Jesus Christ? See, we, we have a hard time imagining that because that's not what happened. We know that they rejected the Christ by and large. We know that they crucified him. We know that he went to the cross and he died for our sins. We know that he ascended to the Father. We know that he sits there to intercede for us. We know that the church age then unfolds. We know what happened because we have the 20 centuries of hindsight, 21 centuries of hindsight looking back. But God's not limited by our viewpoint of the what ifs. See, he has seen every course. He has seen all of the should haves and would haves and could haves. He tells uh, Capernaum and that you know if the miracles that had been performed in them had been performed in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have remained. All it would have taken was some miracles. And Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. Jesus knew that what if. He knows all these what ifs. All right. So simply because he knows the what ifs, though, does not remove the responsibility we have to make the right decisions in our own day. Now, finally, the last bit we, we dealt with as we ran out of time, his message will only be understood by those regenerate individuals who have spiritual ears. Even today, 2,000 years later, maybe we're struggling with our spiritual ears to understand the conditional statement that John the Baptist could have been the coming Elijah. Literally, as well as in, in the spirit and power of. All right, Luke 7. Any questions on that before I go back to Luke 7? To me, it's just a tr- tremendous comfort that all the what-ifs are already foreseen and dealt with. And that God's plan isn't thwarted by any of that. When Adam and Eve sinned, God wasn't up there in heaven scratching his head saying, Oh my goodness, what do I do now? I never would have dreamed that she would have eaten that apple. Right? It's amazing. The plan of God that anticipates every, the infinite number, the infinite variable of alternate timelines, the infinite number of of parallel universe existences that could have resulted based on each individual decision that could have gone another way. For the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. All right. Luke's recorded detail under point eight. Luke's recorded detail. Uh, same message that we read about in Matthew. Uh, the least in uh, the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Um, uh, it says in Luke seven twenty-eight. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people, that is the common people, the ordinary run-of-the-mill Jewish people, the normal folks just sitting there, and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, 
not having been baptized by John. All right, verses 29 and 30 are unique to Luke's detail, not recorded in Matthew's detail, so let's take a look at it. The Lord's message produced two opposite responses. The Lord's message, uh, message, the Lord's message produced two opposite responses. Verse 29 is the one and verse 30 is the other. The people and tax collectors. The people and tax collectors. Does that phrase bother you? It almost sounds like the tax collectors aren't people. <laughs> right? Because if you have the people and the tax collectors, then that must mean the tax collectors aren't people. Okay? No, I don't think that. Because it would also mean that neither were the Pharisees and neither were the lawyers. They're not people either. Because you've got people, you've got... You following? A little bit awkward in English by virtue of the way we use people. So maybe we've got to find a better term for people, like common people, normal people, the day-to-day, hoi polloi, ordinary kind of people. Okay? As distinct from tax collectors, as distinct from Pharisees, as distinct from Sadducees, lawyers, and so forth. Sometimes we, tr- we run into trouble with the Jews. Right? That phrase, the Jews, the Judaizers, the rulers of the Jews. Because we look at them and we say, well, weren't they all Jews? <laughs> Jesus was a Jew. Peter and the other disciples, weren't they Jews? Yeah, they were Jews. So what, when, when the Gospels are talking about the Jews, hoi Judaioi, the Judaizers, what was it talking about? Was it talking about their race? They were all Jews. Okay? Like this one here, the people. We, re- we recognize that they were just the ordinary folks. The, the common folks were just sitting there uh, listening to the message, watching the goings-on, and, and uh, the aftermath of the, the resurrection of that widow's son there at Nain and so forth. Just the common man on the street. Now, they acknowledged God's justice under subpoint B. They acknowledged God's justice, which is a neat way of putting that. And that's what you have if you have a New American Standard Bible. If you're reading a New King James or an NIV or something else, you're going to have something a little bit different there. The reason why they're going to have something a little bit different there is because we're dealing with a verb that we're not comfortable with human beings doing. <laughs> they, uh, the verb is dikaio to justify. And we love that verb when God's the one doing it because God justifies us. We're saved by grace through faith. God declares us to be righteous. We have the book of Romans. We love the theology from Romans. We're saved by grace through faith, and he justifies us. We're justified on the basis of faith. We all can testify to our orthodox uh, confessions of faith. But here is a verse where the verb to justify, dikaio, is placed in a human context where a human being, a group of human beings, people and tax collectors, are the subject of the verb. They are the active agents in the activity. They're doing the justifying. So how does that work? We're dealing with an aorist active indicative. This is subpoint one. An aorist active indicative of dikaio. To show justice, to do justice, to justify, or to vindicate. I like the translation vindicate when it's a human being that's doing it. Clearly, when God's doing it, then it can be rather causative. When God justifies us, what has He done? He has declared that we are made righteous. See, He has imputed His righteousness to our account. And although we previously weren't righteous... He gave us his righteousness, and so under justification, he could declare that to be so. And when he says, let it be, it is. 
let there be light, there was light. Right? They are justified. They're justified. God's declarative statement of justification makes it so. Now, we can discuss justification on later occasions and so forth. Some would actually minimize the causative nature of justification. That justification is declarative, not causative. The causative is the, is the imputation of righteousness that makes it so. And then the, uh, the, the uh, justification then, dikaiao, is simply the declaration of the reality. It's not causative at all. And if we think of it that way, then uh, don't worry about the flickering light. That's just subliminal messages. We're hypnotizing you this morning. The uh, justification then is declaratory. It's declarative. And God declares us righteous. And when we justify him, it's, it's again, we can't be causative. We're not making him just. But we are declaring him just. We are declaring him righteous. Anytime we obey him, we're declaring him righteous. Because our obedience itself is a declaration that God is right. And we are obeying God because God is right. So any aspect of obedience is always a, dec- a declarative statement that God is right, that he is just, that he is fair. He's worthy of our obedience. And so those who listened, who, who received this message and rejoiced to hear it, they were justifying God. They were testifying by their lives and their words and their deeds and their attitude that God was right in all that he did in sending John and sending Christ in this plan for redemption. But it is an aorist active indicative of dikaio. But I want you to notice this. Why were they positive to the message of Christ? Because previously to that, they were positive to the message of John. And they had followed that, they had, they had obeyed that message of John by actually going through the ritual that John had of, of the water baptism. They were equipped to do this by virtue of their previous water baptism and identification with the ministry of John the Baptist. We read it again in verse 29. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, they justified God. They declared him to be right and just and and fair. Having been baptized previously, having previously been baptized with the baptism of John. So they have built for themselves a pattern, which is a good pattern to build. Positive volition and learning. More positive volition, more learning. It's a great habit to be in. Because the other direction is also habit-forming. Negative volition, carnality, leads to more carnality. It rolls downhill. See, poor decisions lead to fewer and lesser options. And then, even more poor decisions lead to even more fewer and lesser options. But good decisions lead to Better, more, and greater options. So what track do you want to be on? These guys, the people and the tax collectors, were on the good track. Positive to John's message, positive to Christ's message, justifying God. The Pharisees were on the bad track. Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves. Rejected God's purpose for themselves. And no purpose of God's can be thwarted, but these purposes are rejected. Hope we can grasp what this is about. 
Remember, God desires for none to perish. So everyone who actually does perish is rejecting, not thwarting, but rejecting the purpose God has for them. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So under point C, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the plan of God. The boule. For those of you that were here in basic doctrinal studies and we did the boulology study, the doctrine of God's plan. We gave you the Alpha to Omega overview on the plan of God, the dispensational grace eternal plan of the ages. This is where we got that vocabulary, the boule, the plan. They rejected the plan of God. <laughs> we get so prideful and we say, oh, I got a good plan. We think my plan is better than God's plan. Satan thought his plan was better than God's plan. That was Satan's original fall. So the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the plan of God. Are you following the outline? I tried something different on this. I went after the B. I gave you A and then B. And then I tried something different. I went ahead and just did the subpoints there, one and two, like that. Those came under the B. And then when it was time to go to the C, I erased out those subpoints, and so now you're looking at A, B, and C. That way you can see the A, B, and C all together. Okay, I did, that was something new. I was playing with one of the transition features of PowerPoint. I thought that's kind of neat. All right, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the plan of God. They rejected it. Vocabulary. Aorist active indicative of atheteo. Atheteo. To reject, to declare it invalid, to nullify it, to ignore it, to set it aside, to veto it, might be another 21st century American expression. They 86'd it. They nixed it. What else can I come up with? I used to be a waiter. We used the term 86 a lot when something was out. All right. Aorist active indicative of atheteo. Tithemi means to put or to place to a point. You have the alpha privative in front of it, which negates it. Uh, it is unappointed, uh, invalid, set aside, rejected. I actually like the term rejected. I think rejected is a good term because you've examined it and you've rejected it. You just set it aside, say, nope, not acceptable. Don't want any part of that. And there's a whole word study we can do on this that comes from the 16 uses of atheteo in the New Testament including the ones that you see right there. Mark 6.26, Mark 7.9, Luke 7.30. Four times in Luke 10.16. That might be worth looking at. John 12.48, 1 Corinthians 1.19, Galatians 2.21, also Galatians 3.15. A couple of times in 1 Thessalonians 4.8, as well as 1 Timothy 5.12. That's where the widow who decides to get, go ahead and get married afterwards, she has set aside her previous commitment her previous vow to remain a, an unmarried widow uh, Hebrews 10:28 and Jude 8 those are all applications of authoteo and you will see that the rejection the nullification the setting it aside the ignoring it considering it useless is communicated by this verb and the Pharisees and the lawyers did that they, they rejected, set it aside as useless. They totally dismissed 
God's plan for them. And they did so when they rejected the message of the baptizer, when they rejected the message of Jesus Christ. They set aside God's purpose for them. Uh, Just a handful of these. I do want to get to these brats. Um, Mark 6.26. The king was very sorry yet because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. This is the dancing daughter that wanted the head of John the Baptist. Uh, She said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And he was unwilling to atheteo her. He was unwilling to refuse her. He was unwilling to reject her request, to declare it invalid or to ignore it, to nullify it. So he sends the executioner and John the Baptist loses his head. Chapter 7 and verse 9. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. You are experts at atheteoing the word of God so that you can tereo, keep, obey, adhere to your traditions. These Pharisees were great at that. They were rejecting the truth of God's word because they were so busy embracing their own religion. The traditions of the Pharisees. Luke 7.30 is our verse we have this morning. Luke chapter 10 and verse 16 has atheteo four different times. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Four times they're all rendered rejects. They were rejecting God the Father by rejecting Jesus Christ. They were rejecting the plan that the Father has for their redemption and for their participation in the eternal glory of His beloved Son. Similar message there in John 12, 48. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 19 Different context, but one that we covered in our Corinthian series. God himself does this. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. I will atheteo. Galatians has a couple of uses. Galatians 2. I do not nullify the grace of God. See, this is where he talks about through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. I don't set it aside. I don't ignore it. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Just the opposite. He's not nullifying grace. He's embracing grace. And then chapter 3 and verse 15, brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Once the contract is signed, it's binding. You can't just nullify it. You can't just add conditions to it. Both parties went into a contract. Uh, twice in 1 Thessalonians 4.8, 1 Timothy 5.12. I like the one in Hebrews 10. How can I not turn to Hebrews 10? My favorite chapter of my favorite book. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you commit a murder, you've just laid aside the law of Moses. You've nullified it. You've rejected it. You've set it apart as worthless and said, I don't care what the law says, I committed a murder. The testimony of two or three witnesses is going to kill you then. 
Anyone who nullifies, sets aside, rejects the law of Moses, dies without mercy in the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment do you think we get when we lay aside, trample underfoot the Son of God? Then the last use is Jude 8. We won't turn there. All right. That's what they were doing. They were predisposed to doing this by virtue of their previous rejection of John the Baptist's ministry. They were predisposed to doing this by virtue of their previous rejection of John the Baptist's ministry. The participle expressing the previous activity, having not been baptized by the baptism of John. Luke 7.30 The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Their previous negative volition led to additional negative volition. I mean, it only stands to reason because they had rejected John's message. John had said, listen to this guy. <laughs> well, they'd rejected that, so why would they listen to this guy? Because they'd already rejected the legitimacy of John's message, which said, listen to this guy. So when they came to Jesus, well, if they're going to be consistent to themselves... Well, we rejected him. He was a lunatic. He was a weirdo. He wasn't one of us. So, same thing with this guy. Negative volition producing more negative volition. Carnality leading to more carnality. It's the nature of how it works. Why we're to keep short accounts. That's why we were to keep short accounts. By the way, um, we have the same process with respect to God consciousness and gospel hearing. The, the nature of the Holy Spirit who woos and draws and, and convicts and prepares at that point of God consciousness. When the unbeliever is aware that there is a God and if they're hungry because they're being convicted, they're being led, they're being given that desire. They don't have it in themselves, but they're given that desire to, to hear more. Positive volition of gospel hearing takes you to, uh, I mean, to God consciousness, presents the opportunity of gospel hearing. Positive volition of gospel hearing. You hear the word of God. The light pierces the, the veil of darkness so that you can see the truth. Positive volition, positive volition. But negative volition of God consciousness. What's that going to lead to? If you hate God's existence. You deny God's existence. You embrace atheism. You embrace evolution and everything else. What kind of uh, hearing do you get with the gospel then? Yeah, your foolish heart is darkened. Satan has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. See? And by virtue of this principle, then, you see how these things then work. All right. Now, the never satisfied brats. Oh, no, one more, one more point here. Point D. The either-or contrast. The either-or contrast is either justify God or reject Him. The people and the tax gatherers justified Him. They declared him right. They declared him just. The Pharisees and the, and the uh, lawyers rejected him. Rejected him, rejected his wisdom, rejected his plan. And the scriptures present that as an either-or contrast. We talked about this on hermeneutics Sunday night. We, want, we don't want to put things into an either-or unless the scriptures themselves put it into an either-or. And this passage does just that puts it into an either-or contrast. Either justify God or reject Him. 
Now, these never satisfied brats. And a point now, the last thing we're going to get out of this episode. They're like children in the marketplace. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation and what are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another. Okay? It's almost like uh, Red Rover, Red Rover, send uh, Johnny right over. All right? Or they call in the marketplace. They call challenges to one another. They call songs to one another. They call uh, different games to one another. They play Simon Says. They do this, do that. Monkey see, monkey do. All the stupid things that children do. Why do they do them? Because they're children. All right? They'll eventually grow up and quit doing those things. You wonder, though, if these Pharisees are ever going to grow up. Now, they're like children in the marketplace. And what are they doing? They call out to one another and they say, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. See, they're, they're gloomy. They're disappointed. It's not fair. You're not playing our game by our rules. We played the flute for you. This is what we're doing because we call the shots. And you didn't dance. So they're highly offended. The Pharisees were highly offended. Because they they're the flute players. They're the ones that call the tune. They're the ones that say, you know, dance to our music. Do what we say. We run your life. And why they hated John the Baptist so much, he wasn't dancing. Or the other way. We, uh, we sang a dirge. And you did not weep. So it didn't matter. They could play a happy song and do a happy little jig and dance. And, or the, the dirge. You see, they're, they're direct opposites. The flute music and the dirge. Okay? Meaning that they call the shots. You have to dance accordingly. Or you upset them. And they go pout. Because children, they don't get their way. What do they do? They pout. And a two-year-old, if he had the ability to kill you, would be dangerous. Because a two-year-old might want to do just that. When they pout, when they throw their tantrum. Well, the Pharisees do have the ability to kill. And they will. They will kill the Baptist. They will kill the Christ. Now, we see this is metaphor, but the metaphor is describing the reality. So point A, the perspective of the people and tax collectors is likened to wisdom's children. Don't miss that. Before I look at these spoiled brats, let's look at the good children. Verse 35, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And it's the same verb, dikaio. It's why I like the translation vindicated. If you're going to use vindicated in verse 35, why not use vindicated uh, up there earlier in verse 29? When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they vindicated God. Keep it consistent. It's the same dikaio in verse 29 that you have down there in verse 35. In fact, I think seeing the key of dikaio to begin verse 29 and dikaio to end verse 35, I think that frames then the, the paragraph and, and shows us what this, this whole paragraph is dealing with. Dealing with justification. Dealing with the, the human dikaio of God and His plan. So wisdom is vindicated by her children. Those are the good children. Those are the believers. Those that who, by faith in Jesus Christ, are sons of God. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. But now there's these other children. 
The perspective of the Pharisees and lawyers is likened to never satisfied brats. It is likened to never satisfied brats. You can't make them happy. You cannot make them happy. They weren't happy with John the Baptist. They weren't happy with Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to make them happy. You know, there are some people. That's, that's their approach. Phariseeism does that. Legalism does that. If that's, the, if that's the approach and arrogance, then I don't care. No one's going to measure up. See, it's remarkable. Visitors that come in here looking for a church. What are they looking for? And in some cases, nothing measures up. Nothing measures up. See, it's, it's amazing. I have to laugh because there was, there was a day years ago now. But there was a day when, when two, uh, two different men approached me, said they were leaving the church, taking their families, leaving the church. Same day, both of these men. One told me I was too much like Colonel Thiem. He says, you're too Baraka. You're too Colonel Themish. The other one left. You want to know what he told me? You're not Theme enough. You're not Theme enough. Same day, two different men. Well, grace is grace. You are what you are, and you ministers unto the Lord. These guys, though, are never happy. No matter what, you can't make them happy. And here's why. The brats expect others to dance in a manner consistent with the tune that the brats select. The brats expect others to dance in a manner consistent with the tune the brats select, whether it's a flute song or a dirge. But who's picking the tune? They are. They're picking the tune. And they expect you're going to dance to their tune. Because they're in charge. That's their pride. That's their arrogance. That's their, that's their nature. The brats were disappointed with John the Baptist dancing. <laughs> Why? Because he wasn't dancing. He wouldn't do it. He wasn't there to please them. He wasn't there to follow in their religion. John wouldn't play by their rules. So they found grounds to criticize him based upon his ascetic lifestyle and ministry. They found grounds to criticize him. They looked at him and they said, well, he's, he's crazy. He's got a demon. They look at him and say, look, you know, he doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. See, he's just a psychopath. Look at him. He's living out there in the desert. He's got a coat of camel's hair. He's, he eats locusts and wild honey. That's got to be disgusting. So that doesn't satisfy him. They find grounds to criticize him. Can't argue with his message, so criticize his, uh, his lifestyle. Criticize his, the way he lives his Christian walk. The brats were also disappointed with Jesus Christ. He wouldn't dance to their tune either. So they find grounds to criticize him. Jesus wouldn't play by their rules either. And so they found grounds to criticize him based upon his libertarian lifestyle and ministry. He did come eating and drinking. As it says, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. How do you win with these guys? You've got John the Baptist on one end, 
under a lifelong Nazarite vow, no alcohol, no drinking, very limited diet, living an ascetic life. And then jump all over him. Then you got Jesus Christ, who is not a glutton, he's not a drunkard, but he is living a libertarian Christian way of life because of the liberty he has with the truth of God, with the doctrine and the maturity, and he can eat whatever that's set before him with Gentiles. He can consume alcohol. He can do all this stuff. He can go into a tax collector's house. He is living the life of liberty like 1 Corinthians 8 and, and so forth. And, well, let's criticize him for that. Let's criticize him for that. So you've got the two the two illustrations, and they are set up that way. And in the reality of John's lifestyle and Jesus' lifestyle, we're different. Just like the flute song and the dirge were opposites. And that's the whole point to this, is that these Pharisees were the spoiled brat children. They hated the fact that neither John nor Jesus danced to their tune. And very quickly, they're going to have the baptizer's head lopped off. And they're going to uh, have Jesus Christ on the cross. This is still uh, two years before it actually happens. And he's got these guys pegged just right. All right. We are over time. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.